Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome author and keynote speaker, William DeResowitz, author of the brilliant, excellent Sheep. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Bill, it's, it's great to have you on the show. I'd love to talk about this because when you think of the amount of disruption and so many forces are play in the world today, artificial intelligence, there's disruption, there's businesses disappearing overnight, there's other ones cropping up overnight. And when you think over the last 50, 60 years, only 12% of the Fortune 500 companies that were in existence are still in existence today. You could look and point and go, you know what, there's a leadership crisis. But when you read your book, you actually go, okay, where does that originate then? And you cover that brilliantly. So I'd love to talk about that. And maybe first, Bill, if you would, introduce yourself maybe to the audience to let them know about your own background. I was an English professor at Yale for 10 years. and while I had lots of very smart, driven, ambitious students, I, I also saw that there were a lot of problems with the system that was producing them. Uh, the system, as you said, that's designed to produce our leadership class. And uh, eventually I wrote this book, Excellent Sheep, about the problems that I was seeing. Uh, basically, a system that is producing people who are very good at giving the grown-ups what they want. Excellent sheep is actually a phrase that came from one of my students as a description of herself and her peers. They're really, really good at jumping through the hoops, getting the A's on exams, getting the prestige admissions and employment opportunities. They're really bad at thinking for themselves, at finding their own direction in life. And as a result, although I didn't realize this until uh, later, they're often quite miserable. They're often quite unhappy because uh, they, they, they're working incredibly hard, but they don't really know what they're working towards. So, you know, the book came out a few years ago, and uh, I think probably the most important thing that I learned since then from the response to the book is that while I thought I had written a book about elite higher education in the United States, most of the problems, and really all of the important problems that I was talking about, apply not just to elite higher education, not just to higher education, and not just within the United States. And that's why I'm especially glad that you're having me on today, because these problems are global, because the forces that are driving what education looks like today are also global. And as you suggest, the ultimate problem with this, aside from the grief that it causes for individual young people, which to me is a very big problem, is the failed leadership class that 40 or 50 years of this kind of education has given my country, your country, a lot of countries. Absolutely. And one thing that really resonated was the global nature of the problem. And you go right to the source of the problem. And I love what you've done because it's not just the education system. It does start with the parents and it starts right back. And you talk about the concept of tiger parents and this generation yeah. snowflake that just cannot take criticism because they are, as you say, jumping through the hoops for the parents to begin with. And we'll talk in a little while about liberal arts and the importance of that. But one thing really resonated was this idea of they're almost doing it to impress their parents or to get approval from their parents. And 
therefore, there's no calling, there's no vocation coming from them to go, I really want to do this, or even to explore what they want to do in the first place. They're almost following a script that's been written by their parents. Could we tell our audience a little bit about the concept of tiger parents? Yeah, well, there was this crazy book that came out in the States, I don't know, four or five years ago called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother by a Chinese-American woman named Amy Chua, who is celebrating her own basically insane kind of pressured parenting that she subjected her two girls to. And while she makes these gestures towards self-criticism, it's really, it's really, a, uh, she's very proud of this. And she's holding herself up as a model. And the book was actually received that way. It led to a lot of self-flagellation on the part of American parents. We're not being tough enough on our kids. We're coddling our kids. I actually think that that's nonsense for a number of reasons. First of all, this kind of parenting is horrendous. Second of all, it's not Chinese versus American. I mean, this is typical upper-middle-class parenting in the States, and I suspect elsewhere. She just had an extreme form of it. And the other thing that I think is really important to say, because there's this idea now that kids are coddled, and I think that that's at best a partial truth. It's true that they are protected and often overprotected from certain kinds of criticism and certain kinds of uh, risk. I mean, specifically, they're protected from risk in a way that, that's ultimately very damaging. Uh, it's kind of a psychological version of what we do to their immune systems, where you know kids have all these allergic problems now because they're not exposed to enough allergens when they're young. And we do the <laughs> same thing psychologically. We protect them from, from uh, risk and pain, uh, and therefore they're not able to deal with it. But at the same time, and in the same families, there's enormous pressure to succeed and to succeed in this very narrow sense of, of, of credentialed success, Ivy League admissions in the States, maybe it's Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, whatever. Um, and, and this kind of coddling and pressuring actually go hand in hand. So what you end up with is a kid who, as you say, is doing, is playing out the script that the parent tells them to play out with a sense that if they step off the path or fail or get an A minus or whatever it is, fail to get into one of the you know, top 12 schools, that their life will be over. And there's no, there's no experiential or even intellectual understanding that failure is not the end of the world, that actually failure can be healthy if it builds resilience and you know, blah, blah, blah. The other thing I want to say, though, and, and I think it's, it's also important to say, is that I, I don't blame parents per se. I mean, yes, some parents can be crazy like Amy Chua, and I think all parents need to really examine their motives when they say, I'm just doing this because I want my kid to be happy. They may be sincere about that, but they still need to ask themselves whether what they're doing is really going to lead to their child's happiness. But even beyond that, whether we're talking about parents or we're talking about kids, people are responding to the incentives that the system is creating for them. I mean, I kind of understand why parents are so crazy now. Um, we've evolved increasingly in the direction of a winner-take-all system. And the feeling is, if I don't make sure that my kid is you know, in the 1%, let's say, maybe not literally financially, but in terms of worldly success, or the top 5 or 10%, then they're going to be you know, screwed. Then there's no other option other than a precarious kind of working-class existence. Those fears can be exaggerated, but they start in a very legitimate place. And I think we need to not blame parents, and we certainly need to not blame kids. We need to kind of help them climb out of this hole of panic and anxiety 
that we uh, dug for them or kind of made them dig for themselves. Yeah, you intertwine that really well later on in the book, which is the idea of the class system, I suppose, and, and the way the, the system was made to only have wealthy or upper class children within it. So the education only happens at that level, and it's very, very hard to get an education for anybody who's in the lower class areas. And therefore, that just becomes this kind of cycle that leads to the same people running the country. Nobody's questioning anybody because it's all emperor's new clothes. Nobody says anything because they're all part of the same elite kind of system. But but we might we might come back to that because there's really important stuff in the meantime to get there. And some of them is, is like you talk about the pressure on the kids, and you mentioned it briefly. And one of the things I heard over here recently is the idea of students under so much pressure that they're taking performance-enhancing medications such as Ritalin, even though they may not have ADD or anything like that, because they have to keep studying and they have to force themselves to do this and to keep up this facade. And, you know, the first time I read about it was in your book is the Stanford Duck Syndrome and this idea that you might fill our audience in about. Oh, yeah, well, this, yeah, I mean, kids at Stanford talk about Stanford Duck Syndrome, which means you look serene on the surface, but you're paddling madly underneath. And you talk about Ritalin. I mean, the list of pharmaceuticals that, that students are, are on these days, either by prescription or because it kind of gets passed around or sold. Uh, there's, there's the performance-enhancing stimulants. There's the anti-anxietals. There's the antidepressants. Um, basically, uh, an ongoing attempt to kind of manage your physiology uh, so that it can, you can perform at your peak. And like I said, you know, when I first started to talk and write about this, it was back in 2008. It was right actually at the end of my time as a professor. Uh, and I, I was the kind of professor who knew, who got to know students, you know, about as well as I think any other uh, instructor is likely to. And I made room for them to talk to me about their, you know, about the questions they had about, you know, their career, whatever, uh, which, is, which is really what clued me into the things, a lot of the things that I was writing about. What even I did not recognize at that time was precisely this uh, anxiety and panic that was underneath it. Uh, and it was only later that students I had known, uh, who I continued to stay in touch with after they graduated from college, finally confessed to me how miserable they had been, including students who seemed like, of all the kids I knew, like the most sort of normal and cool and funny and like kind of relaxed and just kind of living life. Uh, and then also, um, I got hundreds of emails from students all over this country and in other countries even. And, and probably the dominant theme, aside from how unsatisfying their education was, was how miserable it was making them. So Stanford Duck Syndrome, I mean, I, I was in a sense, you know, victim of it too. I mean, victim in the sense that I, I couldn't see the paddling madly underneath because they're so good at hiding it. And, and that's partly through drugs and it's partly just through, you know, keeping their shit together. Um, when I was in college in the eighties, you know, we were miserable because I think it's, it's natural to be a certain kind of unhappiness is very natural at that age. And it's actually, I think, developmentally appropriate and desirable. You know, you're unhappy with yourself. You're unhappy with the world. You don't know what you want to do. That's all good. Um, this is different, right? I mean, we were very open about our alienation and our, you know, rebellion. Um, this is the opposite. This is 
shutting everything down, not being rebellious, not dissenting, not um, chafing against the system. And they're, they're very often not only hiding it uh, um, from their teachers, they're hiding it from their peers, because typically, you know, each, each kid thinks that they're the only one who's going through this. They're great at hiding it from their parents. And to the extent that parents are not clued into what's going on with their children, whether it's in high school or later in college, it's, it's because they think that if the kids are achieving, everything is great. Often parents are the last people to know what's really going on internally with their adolescent children. Yeah. And, and, um, and then it usually gets to a crisis stage when something, when something happens or something breaks and everybody knows and they're the most shocked of everybody, but, which is a huge shame. Your kid has to take a leave of absence from college or drop out or, God forbid, something more serious, a suicide attempt or something even worse. That's exactly right. Yeah, and it reminds me actually a bit of, of work burnout when somebody just gets themselves to such a state and then they, they absolutely burn out. But we're doing this to, to, to kids at college stage. And, you know, you call this out in the book that it, it is supposed to be a little bit surreal. It's supposed to be a little bit of a bubble in, in university, in third level, level education in particular, because that allows you play, allows you experiment, allows you expand your mind and question the dogma and fight against it and and what we've done instead and i suppose this is the whole theory of the book is we're we're making we're carbon copying people and going to go bang stamp you're done bang stamp you're done instead of going to go okay we want to teach you the skills that are so necessary for the world today and tomorrow yes we are doing that but i think actually we're doing this kind of uh, as you say sort of uh, cookie cutter education in the name of economic competitiveness, which I, which I have a great problem with as the goal, as the overriding goal of education to begin with. But um, uh, the reason that college is no longer, for most students, that kind of time at the beginning of young adulthood of play and exploration is precisely because they've been given the message that, you know, the goal of college is to get your first job. The goal of college is to prepare yourself for the job market. No waste of time is allowed. Nothing that you can't put on your resume. Um, so the idea is that we're preparing them for the job market. The irony, as you point out, and I think this is one of your starting points for wanting to talk to me, is that it's actually not preparing them for the current state of the economy very well at all. You know, if you wanted to design an educational system that that stamped out creativity, flexibility, and education, you design the one that we have. <laughs> and, and then you add into that that the I'm, I'm doing air quotes here. The rebels, either in corporations today or organizations, who go against the grain, and those in college or those to their parents who go, "Mom, Dad, I want to do a liberal arts degree," and then they get they drop their hands, head in their hands in shame and going, oh no, he's not going to do finance and become go into finance or, or, or into consulting. And all of a sudden it's crisis mode. Instead of letting right. the person go after what is in their heart. That's right. That's right. And uh, listen, I think parents are operating from very little information when it comes to what's going to be useful to their kids. Even if we, even if we want to confine the discussion, bracket the discussion for now, in, in purely economic terms and talk about larger issues like fulfillment later on. 
But even in purely economic terms, I think parents are operating, and there are all kinds of studies and surveys of corporations that show this, that they're not just looking for finance majors, they're not just looking for engineering majors, that liberal arts degrees have all kinds of value on the marketplace, that they actually become more valuable the older you get, and the, and the more your job is likely to draw on the kinds of so-called soft skills that liberal arts uh, programs instill like communication and, and teamwork and problem solving and being able to draw information from different uh, realms of, of uh, knowledge uh, and integrate it into a creative solution. Uh, all these things are very valuable, but parents and therefore children, they don't hear this, or if they hear it, they don't believe it. And they, they think that, like you said, if my kid doesn't study engineering, they'll end up sleeping under a bridge. If my kid doesn't go, in, go into <laughs> finance, they'll end up sleeping in the gutter. And it's really not true. But, you know, like I said, it's very hard to communicate that message. Yeah. And, and, and some of the skills, right? So you, you mentioned like soft is the new hard. There's so many companies saying that. They're saying these things and then they're finding it difficult to attract in these people, these liberal thinkers or these different thinkers when those people do go in, they get rejected. They get <laughs> the system. They're, they're like a bad skin graft that the system just booms them out straight away. But some of the other skills that are so important, because you, you list these out in the book for, for the world of disruption that we're in today, for the huge challenges that are in business today. What other skills do you see coming out of the, the art, liberal arts or, or just different thinking in general? Right. Well, as I mentioned, communications is an obvious one. And and it, it, it also may seem obvious that any kind of decent education is going to give you communication skills. But really, if you've, if you've met and interacted with graduates, you know how rare it is that people actually can write well and write effectively and can write in different ways, right? I mean, that if you think about a business context and all the different kinds of constituencies with whom you might need to communicate, whether it's a boss or a team worker or a client, or in some cases, the public, in, you know, whether it's on a website or talking to a journalist, you need to be able to adapt your communication styles to your audience. Uh, if you've gotten a technical degree or a business degree where you're just learning business writing, you're not gonna know how to do that. I think another thing, uh, is just human skills, just interpersonal skills. I mean, increasingly what you hear in the business world is that uh, companies are not creating products so much as creating experiences. Well, if you're going to yeah. create a meaningful experience, a, uh, an engaging experience, uh, you need to be able to, put, again, put yourself in the place of the person who's having the experience, understand what they might be able to respond to. Um, and then design whatever the experience is going to look like to make it resonant with them. Uh, a, a technical major isn't going to give you that. Uh, a liberal arts major where you're reading literature, where you are constantly being asked to see the world from the perspective of fictional characters or maybe readers in other cultures, uh, is going to help you develop that. And then another thing, just uh, just limited to three, is we live in an increasingly globalized economy, which means not just knowledge of other cultures, which is valuable, you know, specific other cultures, but a knowledge of how to acquire the knowledge of other cultures, right? Fe you know, feeling comfortable moving within different contexts. So, you know, now your, your company is, say, trying to open up a market in a new country. 
It's not a country you know anything about yet, but if you have the experience of studying other cultures and of interacting with different kinds of people, you already have a leg up in terms of figuring out how you're going to enter into that world and start to communicate with people there, uh, work with people there. Right? So, I mean, yeah. these, these narrow technical silos that people put themselves in are very limiting. Uh, there, was a, there was an article just last year by a professor at the Wharton School of Business, which is you know, one of the top business schools in the U.S., where he used the example of petroleum engineering. A few years ago, the price of oil shot up, and there was a big rush to petroleum engineering programs at American universities. Uh, and that was good for a while until the price of oil collapsed a couple of years ago with no signs of revival. And now those jobs are drying up. So you can't say to yourself, oh, well, you know, petroleum engineering is the thing to study or, or virtual reality or whatever the, the hot thing is now. You need What yeah. you really need is the kind of education that's going to teach you to teach yourself, that's going to teach you to be a flexible thinker. It's going to teach you to be able to adapt to all the changes that are going to be coming in the next 40 years of your working life that nobody can predict right now. That's the point. Yeah, and then, and then you add in, as you said, if going right back to the start to the parents, if you take away the opportunity to build resistance in the children in the first place, how the heck are they going to actually get there added to the educational shifts that they have to go through if they don't have the resilience to, to even go through a, a dip in performance or a dip in life because life is going to be giving them a have a lot of dips. One of the things I thought, thought w w was, you, you called it out earlier on, is incentives. So there's parents' incentives for the children to go, look, here's, jump through this hoop and I'll, you know, buy a new car, whatever it is, or some type of reward, even a pat on the back. Or, or, I'll, I'll, still, or I'll still love you. That's really exactly. Yeah. Get an A and, and I'll and, still love you. <laughs> exactly, and um, and I can tell everybody then the club about you. But that that whole mindset, so that's built into children. But then the educational system itself is incentivized not so much about educating the students at all. Like I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm being I'm being disingenuous to to a lot of people in, in education. There there are brilliant teachers who want the te the kids to learn. And, and learn life, etc. I'm just saying, at a high level, they've gone from being educational facilities to being enterprises that make money. Yeah, look, I mean, individual teachers, uh, and, and, you know, my travels, I've spoken to a lot of schools, uh, a lot of colleges, universities, a lot of high schools uh, over the last few years since the book came out, before the book came out. I mean, individual teachers, really care. Certainly at the secondary level, at the university level, it's more problematic. We can talk about why they're not incentivized to teach. But I mean, the people working in the system often care deeply about education, about their students, about helping them get set up to live fulfilling lives. But they also are responding to incentives, or at the very least, they are not in a very strong position. They're, you know, they're workers in a very large bureaucracy if they're university teachers. And um, the real tone and mission of the place is not set by them. In other words, they feel that the system is, is hostile to what they're trying to accomplish. And universities, at least in the U.S. that I know best, and I'm sure not just in the U.S., uh, there are two things, right? You pointed out that they're enterprises. People talk about the corporatization of the university, where 
you know, again, I mean, it's not that they're for-profit entities, but they, they're, you know, they're looking at their own budget lines. They're often facing deep cuts in public funding and they, and they're, they're trying to reorient their mission towards that, which is going to bring in the most money, which often means partnerships with corporations to monetize their scientific research. They call that technology transfer in the U.S., and it's sort of this huge thing. And you see universities building giant new medical centers and giant new scientific facilities and starving the arts and humanities, which are not felt to be lucrative. So that's one piece of it, corporatization. And the other piece is what they call the customer service mentality. So part of the monetary squeeze is that you're, you know, you're basically competing for students for their tuition dollars, right? Especially at tuition-driven schools that don't have large endowments. So how do you appeal to an 18-year-old to like, you know, buy your university, quote unquote, to go to your university with their tuition dollars? Well, you treat them like a customer, which means that you give them what they think they want or what you think they think they want, which is not really the best thing to do with an 18-year-old. Rather than treating them like a student, where you say, this is what I think is best for you, maybe that sounds paternalistic, but I don't have a problem with that in this context. Um, This is what I think you need to learn. This is how I think you need to learn. And instead of giving you uh, luxurious new dorms, a fancy new athletic center, uh, you know, uh, organic uh, menu items in the dining hall, I'm going to insist that you have a real educational experience. But very few schools do that. I think very few schools think they can afford to do that. But also, I think you know, most schools have just kind of forgotten what a real educational mission is, quite frankly. Mm. Again, not at the yeah. level of the individual teacher, but at the level of the layers of bureaucrats who now run universities. We see this in so many companies. You see it in the press. You see it in journalism. You, you know, people are incentivized by clicks on their articles. So then they're writing differently to get more clicks on their article rather than writing for the real reason behind it. Then it, it brings us to the inequality in education because you know there's so much talk of diversity these days where people and, and automatically people think of race or, or sex or religion or whatever it's it's that thing people think of but we're thinking about diversity of thought people with different mm. thoughts or different thinking coming together to actually challenge each other within a business so you know not all of yes men or women sitting around together and this insanity loop which leads companies down into into disruption. And instead, we, we don't have enough of those people in the system in the first place. Like you said, liberal arts is under, under threat. But then on top of that, you have different uh, qualities or different inequality. So people from low-income families not even able to get to the table in the first place. Yeah. I mean, look... Uh... Again, I don't know what the situation is in other countries. In the U.S., we almost never talk about class. And instead, we talk about race, gender, and sexuality. And often, mm-hmm. especially with race, but not only, um, we think we're talking about race and we're really talking about class and talking about race. I mean, it's also a very legitimate issue, but it can often be a way of not talking about class. So... uh Elite universities, and and not just elite universities uh, in the U.S., will point to their uh, gender and racial percentages, the progress they may have made in the last 20 or 30 years, 
and say, look how diverse we are. We, you know, we're only half white. We're a quarter Asian. You know, we're a quarter black and Hispanic. We're so diverse. But if you look at their uh, class uh, stratification, they're actually not very diverse at all. A lot of uh, uh, black and Hispanic students come from middle class families, and 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 you know, large majority of Asian students. So. Uh, one study shows that at the top, like, 200 universities in the U.S., three-quarters of the students are from the top quarter of the income distribution, and 3% are from the bottom quarter. So they think that they have this diversity of viewpoints because they have a color palette, because they have gender parity. But as you said, that doesn't necessarily make for a diversity of viewpoints at all. What it makes for is a uh, gender-neutral multicultural, but deeply self-enclosed, self-perpetuating upper middle class or elite or leadership class that has used the educational system, has harnessed the educational system to reproduce its class, right? Mm. By, uh, to reproduce itself by making sure that its kids get more and more educational resources and are better equipped to get into the best schools. And so it creates this kind of groupthink where you know, people think that they're being exposed to different points of view, but they're not. I mean, it's it's a comically narrow range of views, and it creates this kind of echo chamber. You know, look, I mean, if you want to point to it, it's kind of an easy target, but look at the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, it was just sort of the same people talking to each other, and nobody could understand until it was too late how completely they they really missed what was actually going on. And you can, I mean... That's just one example. The banks, the corporations, all these corporations that are collapsing or that are in trouble don't understand what's happening to them yeah. because they're operating in a tiny slice of the universe that yeah. looks like the whole world to them. I don't blame them either. I, I, I see psychological inertia sets in because of the system. It's, it's the system they were brought up into and they need different different thoughts and different questions being asked and there's nobody in the system their own system that can ask those questions because they're not they're all as you said they're all kind of brought up through that same system and nobody can step outside the lines you have to let people fail so they succeed you have to let them play and if they don't how are they ever going to learn in the first place and just just expanding on your point this group thing that happens. And it reminds me, if, if you add on another layer, which is social media, you have the same people following the same people. And then you have the algorithms at play, feeding more of the stuff that they like or they clicked on in the first place. So you kind of get this happening at a societal level on top of everything else. It's true. But it seems to me that if there's anywhere uh, where that's going to be reversed or at least resisted, it's got to be in the educational system, right? I mean, there's yeah. nothing can really do about social media and how people use it and how it uses yeah. you. But uh, for God's sake, the school should be, should be uh, working against that. Um, yeah. And to me, I mean, I don't know how funding systems work in other countries, but in the U.S. we have deeply unequal funding levels because it, at primary and secondary school because schools are mainly fo uh, funded through local property taxes. And... Uh, I mean, if there's if there's any one reform I would make, it's that we we must make sure that kids are getting not only equal resources, but I think kids from poorer homes need to get more resources at school. And ideally, mm -hmm. you set up schools 
where where there's real integration, and not again, not just ethnic and racial integration, but a class integration. You talk about as well, you know, judges, presidential candidates, that they are all coming from the same place as well, the same systems, the same families, the same mental places, I suppose. Could we talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, I mean, I was using this as a as a as a way of getting a hold of how self-enclosed the elite and self-perpetuating the elite has become. It's not that I care about presidential candidates per se that much, but I pointed out that if you look at the U.S. presidential candidates from 1948 to 1984, the, you know, the post-war 40 years, um, very few of them, you know, the two major party presidential candidates, very few of them went to elite, you know, Ivy League colleges. Most of them went to state schools. Some of them didn't finish college at all. And this was, in in my country, the great heyday of public higher education, where we built out these terrific systems like the University of California that were free. The UC UC system was free until the 70s. Um, Between 88 and today, I wrote the book before the last presidential election, but the pattern held, unfortunately. Almost all of those presidential candidates went to Ivy League schools, have advanced degrees from Ivy League schools, and not coincidentally, most of them were legacies of one form or another. They were the children of other presidents or of senators, or Hillary was the wife of a president. Donald Trump is the legacy in terms of his wealth. So I, I, I talk about this as a way of focusing the fact that that same thing is true throughout the elite, Right. So that the percentage, say, of uh, of corporate officers who went to the top twelve colleges has—I don't have the the number, but it's a, it's a, it's a ridiculously high percentage. It's much higher than it used to be. Uh, law firms, uh, banks, uh, all the way down the line. Uh, over the last few decades, we've had an elite that's become increasingly narrow, increasingly drawn as children from the elite. It wasn't like that in the decades after the war, when we were expanding the middle class, expanding public spending, especially public spending on education, um, expanding the, the elite, letting, I mean, in this country, we were letting Jews and Catholics and women and blacks and Hispanics in, in a way that we didn't used to before. But sort of in the age of neoliberalism and the age of Reaganism and Thatcherism since sort of the mid to late seventies, we've been going in the opposite direction. And I would say the main way that we've been doing that is by withdrawing funding from public education, especially public higher education. So the average person, the average not just working class, but middle class family, simply cannot afford to give their kids the kind of education that's going to enable them to compete effectively with members of the elite. So at that point, it doesn't even have to be the kind of prejudicial stuff that used to keep you know, Jews and Catholics out of the banks in New York, you know, in the early 20th century, actual discrimination. Now it's simply meritocratic discrimination. You know, we will pick the most talented people, but what do you, you know, guess what? The most talented people, quote unquote, are children of the elite because, not because they're talented per se, but because they've had the educational advantages. They've gone to very well-resourced public high schools or private high schools you know, tuitions at these places can be $50,000 a year, uh, or that's the per-pupil spending in the school district because it's a really wealthy district. So they also uh, are much more competitive when it comes to getting into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, whatever. That's how, it, that's how the system has worked. And 
so, for example, the, the gap in educational attainment in the U.S. between black and white students, it's still a significant gap, but it's half of what it was 50 years ago. The gap in educational attainment between rich and poor students is twice what it was 50 years ago. Okay, this is what we're talking about. So yeah. society is getting less and less equal, and the elite is getting more and more self-enclosed. Yeah, and hence the the winner take all society. So, 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 Bill, yeah. we, we've I suppose we, we've painted the picture, and and you know I, I really highly recommend the book, but and I, I love people to read it because it goes so much deeper into these these points, and it's still. Like and probably much to your chagrin, it, it, it's still very relevant. You, you wrote it in two thousand eight. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's probably true. more relevant now. <laughs> you know, you could you could do an update yeah. and it would be another New York Times bestseller again. Um, but what do you see? You know, you know we're not going to solve it now, but some of the solutions that not not only the education system can take, but some of the the solutions that corporations can make. You know, they're hiring some of the solutions that parents can make, maybe those three areas. So education, corporation, and then the home, what can, what, what changes yeah, can I mean, we make? Listen, let's, let's just say at the outset that this is not easy. This we've, it's taken years for us to get to this point. We're not going to, we're not going to find any quick solutions and any solutions that we propose are going to be hard to implement because if, quite frankly, if they're not hard, they're probably not solutions. Um, Listen, at the educational level, um, listen, aside from, you know, uh, equalizing funding and giving, you know, really giving real educational opportunity, that's sort of beyond what, what the schools themselves can control. I think schools, uh, universities um, need, to, need to get serious about rededicating themselves to their real mission and uh, getting serious that means getting serious about what they spend their money on uh, right. in this country the category of spending that's increased the least at universities is instructional spending in other words actual teachers in the classrooms and they're spending on all these other things that we've been talking about new buildings and uh, salaries of a of a hugely expanding cadre of educational bureaucrats who are not teachers who are not in the classroom and that and that might involve sacrifices. It might involve people losing their job or people cutting their own salaries or you know not building that new building for the sake of putting more money into the classroom, putting more money into scholarships. Um, uh, corporations, I think uh, this is listen, it's not the world that I know, but what I've heard about this is that um in theory, they want a more diverse workforce uh, when it comes to jobs with any kind of real responsibility. In practice, the hiring managers are always playing it safe, right? Hmm. I mean, if you hire someone from, you know, a state university uh, because you're taking a chance on them and they seem promising to you, but it doesn't work out, you get blamed. If you hire someone from Harvard, and it doesn't work out, no one's going to blame you, right? And there's so much ass covering that goes on in corporations, in corporate bureaucracies, that people are afraid to take chances. Uh, so I think corporate cultures, and obviously this has to come from the top, themselves, I think, need to be much more open to risk-taking and chance-taking 
And especially if we're talking, you know, for the things that we're talking about now, I think that really comes down to hiring policy and saying to themselves, look, maybe the best person for the job isn't the one with the shiniest credentials, but the one who can bring uh, a perspective that we don't have, who seems to have something that our current employees lack. Mm. And with parents, uh, look, um, things are not as dire as they seem as the world makes it seem. I mean, uh, yes, there are risks out there for your kid, but you don't need to go into a defensive crouch. You need to maybe look at your own path in life and, and the paths of other successful people you know and recognize that they aren't linear, that you didn't necessarily end up in the place that you started in that you thought you were going to end up. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, I say this to parents, you know, you want your kids to be happy, but who can say that they know what any, what's going to make anyone else happy? I mean, we barely know what's going to make us happy. So to say, listen, I want my kid to be happy, therefore they have to do X, Y, or Z. Um, I, I think that that's, uh, I think that's kind of a ridiculous approach. And the best mm-hmm. thing you can do for your kid is to, I know that's going to sound like a cliche, but help them become who they actually are, help them become Mm -hmm. themselves instead of your preconceived idea of who you want them to be, who you think they ought to be. Um, you know, I mean, to me, happiness, this is not a revolutionary statement to the extent that we can find happiness in life. I think it has to do with, you know, doing the work that's meaningful to us and exercising the abilities that we have and, you know, not trying to be somebody we're not. Yeah. One thing that was dying on me was obviously you found that you're going out and telling people about this questioning. And, you know, I mentioned you're a keynote speaker and, and you speak at a lot of campuses. How How is that received in those campuses? So this has been one of the most striking things for me. I mean, this has been a journey for me, too. Right. The book came out in 2014, but it grew out of an essay that came out in 2008. Uh, I didn't think anybody would see it. Uh, it went viral on the Web immediately, instantly, um, and specifically among college students. And uh, I was, you know, within a week or two, I had been invited to speak at Harvard by a student group. And that first event set a pattern that dozens of events since then have followed. And it's always been incredibly striking to me. Um, The room was packed, was overfulled. I remember the organizers were, were worried about getting enough people if they had, you know, um, high, uh, reserved too large a room. There were people standing at the back. There were people sitting at the aisles. It was supposed to go for an hour and a half. It went for two and a half hours. Almost every event I've done on campuses since then has been exactly like that. Students, you know, following me out to my rental car because they have more questions to ask. And it was really from that first event and from that reaction to the article that I realized that I had really touched a nerve that I, I hadn't even realized was there. That's when I started to understand, not just that I had problems with the system, but that so many students were feeling unfulfilled, uh, the hungers that they came to college with for a sense of meaning, for a sense of purpose, for a sense of intellectual adventure, were not being satisfied. That's what happens at these, at these events. They, they, they're often... Like really moving, really cathartic experiences for the k- kids that I talk to and for myself, because you know 
lots of speakers come to campus and many of them speak about important issues, but I'm talking about their lives, you know? I mean, it's also a really humbling experience for me. Like, I'm talking about their lives, and um, they they get that, they feel that, and there aren't a lot of people in their in their lives that are doing that. You know, their professors aren't doing it, their parents aren't doing it. It didn't happen in high school. You know, so they they're kind of bursting with a need to um, to confess, to ask questions. What should I do? This is my situation. What would what advice would you give me? What do I say my par- to my parents if I want to be a humanities major? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that I get asked. Where can people find out more about you, Bill? They can just Google me, and they will get to my website, BillDeResowitz.com. I think if you Google the title "Excellent Sheep," you'll also get to my website and. And and I have a contact link there, and I'm I'm always happy to hear from people. Because of my last name, there are very few Derezowitzes in the world. I'm very easy to find. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, well, Bill Derezowitz, author and speaker, absolute pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. <laughs> 